The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of Tubagale, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. My name is Jazz Money. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. This is the third episode of a five-part season which showcases recent events from the house, including talks from New York-based cook and author Alison Roman, AI expert Toby Walsh and evolutionary biologist Rob Brooks, along with our 50th birthday debate, The Opera House Would Not Be Built Today. Later in the season, we'll also be hearing new work from four emerging writers commissioned as part of our collaboration with Western Sydney literacy movement Sweatshop. In this episode, we'll be hearing from New York-based cook and author Alison Roman, who encourages us to ditch domestic goddess perfection and embrace a no-fuss, no-nonsense approach to cooking. Alison creates recipes so iconic they have become known by definitive hashtags. Hashtag the cookies, the pasta, and the dip. She is also the host and producer of CNN's More Than a Cooking Show, the creator of a YouTube series called Home Movies, and the author of a newsletter titled A Newsletter. Following the release of her third book, Sweet Enough, Alison sat down with cook, writer and broadcaster Adam Liao for a delicious discussion recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in May 2023. That's a welcome. I know. <laughs> They're trying to make me cry immediately, I think. Yeah. Alison was like, I'm definitely going to cry when I'm on stage today. So you're, you're really doing your best to make that happen. <laughs> Let me at least do my introduction first. <laughs> She's worked in Michelin starred restaurants. She was the senior food editor at Bon Appetit and a columnist for the New York Times. Taylor Swift is a huge fan. Same. <laughs> <laughs> These are the things that you would normally know about someone if you come to hear them speak at the Sydney Opera House. But I'm sure at least for some of you this is new information because you know her simply from the stew, the cookies, or the only pie crust recipes that have become global sensations and are so popular they go by a single name like Madonna or Beyonce. <laughs> she's come from some of the most esteemed brands in food and she's now herself become one of the most esteemed brands in food, a brand that is entirely her own and herself. Please put your hands together one more time for the Alison Roman Empire. <laughs> Alison, first question. Um, did you think when you were leaving to come here tonight that literally the only other person on stage with you would also be wearing a green suit? <laughs> We did not plan this. We did not. It was, um, uh, and yes, I bought this today. Um, but no, it was in the my cards. My apologies. This is, this is my, no, my fault. No, I wasn't going to change. You know, when so. you leave the house in the green suit, you don't think to check. You don't know. Why, yeah, why would anyway. we? That was, yeah, very lucky. Welcome to Sydney. Thank you. Welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to Australia. This is so wild. I'm so glad I can't actually see because I think it would be too much. You have a few thousand but, people in here and they'll yeah. love you. So um, I, I want to go back to the meeting because, to be honest... Most people know you when you're there, you're on their screens, you're in their inboxes. 
let's talk about, you know, Ali from the Valley first. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, and when I was in Brisbane, there was a store called Valley Girl, which I thought was very funny because that's like what they would call me. So you, you grew up in California. You entered, I guess, the food world by dropping out of college and knocking on the door of a restaurant saying, can I work here? And that was Sona in West Hollywood. Um, you then went to other restaurants. Quince now has three Michelin stars. Before then, moving to New York to work at places like Milk Bar and Pies and Thighs. Mm-hmm. I should say, for those that don't know, Pies and Thighs is not like a weird restaurant. It is it a very, naughty, very, very well-regarded, best fried chicken in America kind of, yeah. kind of place. And then let's, let's, let's stop there for now because there's, there's more to go with your history. So what was childhood like for you? What was your favorite Oh, fruit? wow. Well, that's a different talk. Um, yeah. Actually, <laughs> so I was not prepared for that question. Um, but yeah, I grew up in the Valley of San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, which, like, growing up, if I said I was from Los Angeles, mm. if you were from, like, Malibu or Santa Monica, you're like, you're not from Los Angeles. But now, that's where everybody lives. It's sort of like it became, like, I wouldn't quite call it the Brooklynification, but the Valley became the place where people now live. Like if you're a young person and you want to buy a house, you move to the Valley. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was like very suburban. I hung out at the mall a lot and it was, it's like weird because it's also where the Kardashians hang out now. But when I grew up there, it was not like that, but I'm like, wow, I can't believe they're hanging out at the Calabasas commons. Like that was like what I did every Friday. So it was interesting to see it kind of become different culturally. And were you at a, I read something, your, your father saying you'd go to sushi and, you know, you would be as a, as a little girl eating sea urchin and things like that. We, we are, we are a food lover from a young age. I was, but I think really what it was, was my parents had like a very strict sort of try anything once rule. And just for me to say I didn't like something was not an acceptable answer. It wasn't like really a, an approach they were willing to have me take. And if I tried it and then I didn't like it, that was fine, but I had to at least try once. And because they're your parents, they kind of know everything you're trying. If I'm like, I've had it before, they're like, no, you haven't. Uh, you only spend time with me. And so it was, it was sort of more of just like a, you know, I don't think that, especially my mom wanted to adjust any of her lifestyle choices to suit having a child, which again is another talk. Um, join me tomorrow night for mother issues. Um, but, I think, like, when she's like, well, I'm going to eat sushi, and I'm bringing my daughter, and, like, I'm going to eat sea urchin, and so is she. So it was sort of that type of thing. But it wasn't as bougie as that sounds. Like, we weren't eating sea urchin every night. But it was more of also just, like, you know, I think growing up in California, we did a lot of cooking. We had asparagus and artichokes and, like, salmon. And, again, it wasn't fancy. It just was the way that we cooked. Any any favorite foods from childhood, things that stick stick out, like you you like into ravioli or anything? Was not especially into ravioli. I was really into like Italian ices, like oh, the sort yeah. of like hey. little cups that you got at. Co- I don't know what the equivalent of Costco is here. I'm sure there's an American in the audience. There's also a Costco here. Oh, there's a Costco. Yeah. Oh my god! Wow, moves to Sydney. Okay, well now that I know that. Um, yeah, so a lot of like that type of thing. We were a huge Costco family. So like anything from Costco is probably my favorite food again, because that's what we were eating. Four liters of ice cream. Okay. Yeah. Um. yeah I also find <laughs> I have a Baskin Robbins here. So I truly floored. Yeah, we, we, did, we have a lot favorites. of, we have a lot of the brands that you would know here, but we also 
have our own sort of homegrown competition that tends to do a little bit better. I hope so. I mean, Baskin Robbins is not the pinnacle. I, I know you can do better. I mean, we, we, actually, we should talk about how much you know about Australia because I, I fed you your <laughs> no, first. No, we should not. Really don't, know <laughs> don't ask me in front of a bunch of Australians, please. I, I fed you your first lamington yesterday. How was that? It was great. I mean, you made it. Oh, no, no, it was okay. delicious. <laughs> it was perfect. I, it was a bit slapdash, if I'm entirely honest, but it was. It, it was. Uh, I was I was trying to explain to Alison and Federica Andrasani from from who's Italian, uh, basically what Australian food was like. Did, is there? I mean, you're in New York now. You live in New York. Yeah. Okay. In New York, there's a lot of Australian coffee and cafes and brunch. Brecky. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Does anything else about Australian food get outside of our own country? Do you know anything else about Australia? No, I mean, honestly, not really. And, and I don't think it's for, it, coffee has been a huge contribution. I was saying like, I was walking around town today and I was like, oh, Toby's estate. And like, there was an, what was the other one? I forget, but I'm like, oh, we have all these because they've all mm. co- migrated to New York and then are considered like the gold standard for coffee in New York. So, it's, it's true. Like I, I, I often, I often say, like if you go to China, for example, if you get a flat white in China, it's known as a ao bai, which means Australian white. Like we have a very transportable, exportable coffee culture. I'm not yeah, kidding. specifically flat white. Yeah, that that <laughs> phrase even is like if anyone has an Australian accent, that's like the one phrase they can say. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but I think um, I guess here in Sydney, it's kind of a little bit like California in the sense that it's very multicultural. Mm. Um, and we eat, I mean, if you're in the Midwest, you're probably having a very different upbringing in food than you would if you're in California. Right. We eat different cuisines regularly, every week, every night kind of thing. Was that the kind of upbringing that you had too? Yeah, absolutely. It didn't occur to me that you couldn't sort of get anything you wanted whenever you wanted. And I mean, I've, I've lived you know, I moved to San Francisco after LA and then New York. So I've only lived in these major cities, but even traveling throughout the States, it's become a lot easier to find like the best pho in town in like Houston or mm. like incredible, like Ethiopian food in DC. And because, you know, immigrants often move to the States and then they open the restaurant because they had a restaurant from where they were from. And like, this is how I can earn a living. So it became like, you know, in unlikely places. It wasn't just the major cities. But yeah, growing up in Los Angeles, it was like my dad would take me for the best hot dogs and the, uh, you know, pastrami at Langer's and then the amazing tacos and then Thai food. And I never didn't have access to a ton of different styles of food. So from then childhood, you made that, I guess, coastal switch from California to New York. You went to you answered an ad, am I right, to be a recipe tester for Bon Appetit? I went, I moved, I left my restaurant job in San Francisco and then moved to New York. I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I knew I didn't want to work in restaurants anymore. So mm. a friend of a friend was like, oh, I have a friend who opened a bakery as part of this restaurant group mm. that's really popular in New York. And this was pre-Instagram, pre, like, you know, really quick exchanges on the internet. So knowing about different restaurants in New York was still pretty foreign to me. I didn't, mm. I wasn't like keeping up with New York restaurant trends because I was also such a diehard Californian. I was like, why would anyone want to live anywhere else? It's the perfect state. <laughs> and so I didn't like really care what was going on in New York. It didn't really interest me that much. So when I found this out, it was like, oh, great, I'll, I'll, you know, connect you to your friend and I will take this job for a few months while I wait for this other, um, 
bakery to open up in San Francisco, which is like where I'm going to then live out my days. And so I did that and then ended up never leaving New York. But it was like taking that job and they're like, oh, and you have health insurance and we're going to give you a salary. And that was really appealing because I didn't have any money or roots or connections or anything. So it was sort of like a, a nice built-in community and salary and health insurance. Um, and so I took the job, but about a year and a half into it, working at Milk Bar, I was like, this is not what I moved to New York to do and made the choice to leave. But I didn't, it wasn't like I had anything lined up. It was more just, I started putting the word out, like I wanted to do something else in food. Mm. And, and so then you went from being a recipe tester at Bon Appetit to being a senior food editor in just a number of years. Like, what, what, what was Bon Appetit like? It was interesting. I mean, it was the first job I had that wasn't at a restaurant. Mm. That wasn't like, you know, I was a receptionist in high school for a day spa, and then I worked at Jamba Juice, and then I worked in restaurants. So, like, I didn't have any sort of formal training in any other career and I didn't really know what office culture was. And so all of a sudden I'm like going from working in a restaurant to going into like an office building at Condé Nast, like riding in an elevator with girls who work at Vogue. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm trash. I'm a trash person. (laughs) And like, I'm, I didn't graduate college. I'm not smart and I'm not thin and I'm not, you know, like a cool person. It was awful. But I was like, kind of felt like I was flying under the radar so I was like, nobody's looking at me here. Like, no, like they barely acknowledge my existence. So I was able to kind of learn at my own speed, but um, it was great. I fell in love with the work almost immediately because I was like, oh, this is using sort of cognitive cooking skills in conjunction with actually cooking. And the writing didn't come for, you know, two or three years because they just like wouldn't let me write. They're like, that's not what you do. And I was, I mean, I, for the first year and a half, I was just testing recipes. So like, I wasn't even developing my own. And honestly, I didn't know the difference. Like there wasn't like a Bon Appetit test kitchen to aspire to. Like there was no sort of celebrity power behind it. And so it didn't occur to me that that was something that anybody else would want or that I didn't even know what to ask for. I was just like happy to be there. So then how do you become... Alice and Roma. What's the point where you go from like, <laughs> other than being born that way, you know, like. Yeah, again, we can ask my mom, but that's a different talk. <laughs> so the mummy and the daddy, they're like, how does that work? Yeah. <laughs> so if you, no, but how do you make that change from like being behind the scenes, uh, to then writing to then, I guess, these recipes that have a life of their own, that become like, what, what was the point that tipped you from being, I think, I guess, behind the scenes to the front of the scenes? I don't know. I think it happened over a really long period of time. And I think that that happens often with people in our cultural consciousness. It's like, oh, this person's out of, came out of nowhere or, you know, they like became this thing all of a sudden. But oftentimes there's just like years and years of work behind that. And I don't think that I could be good at whatever job it is that I do now if I didn't have all the other jobs that I've had. And there wasn't one like, you know, central moment that led me to be like, oh, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to be a famous person or I want to develop amazing recipes that everybody cooks. Like, none of those things were on the mood board. It was sort of like, I'm going to keep doing the thing that fulfills me creatively. And when I was, you know, when I left Bon Appetit, it was sort of like, I didn't feel like I was in control of my own career anymore. I was like, people are making decisions for me. I've hit a ceiling, both financially and just like logistically with the work that I was able to do. And I just wanted more for myself and my career. I was like, I can expand beyond this, but I didn't know what that was. It was sort of like 
a leap of faith. And I wasn't sure like what was going to happen or how it was going to turn out. And I'm sure a thousand different things could have happened. Very sliding doors and great movie. No, no one. Okay. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, I didn't, I'm a lot less calculated, I think, than people realize or, or assume, but like a lot of the stuff that I ended up doing is, was never really intentional. Yeah, but I mean, that, that's, I guess, the, the point that I was trying to get at. It seems like you know exactly what you're doing at every time. <laughs> that's the trick. <laughs> um, I don't. <laughs> but so part of, I think, your enduring appeal is that and, and the reason I kind of wanted to go through the Michelin star restaurants and the, the, the test kitchen of Bon Appetit is, is that you have this sophistication behind your cooking and an accessibility to it at the front. Mm. Is that by design or is that just who you are? I think that's who I am, I guess. But I also think that there's something to be said for learning how to do things the hard way and then choosing to not do it that way. And it's only until you understand the complexities behind something where you can like truly freeform. Um, I am not a musician, but it feels like if you're a classically trained musician, that's like, you know, you like learn how to do all the stuff and then you can be like, now I'm doing jazz, right? Like you can't just like be like, pick up a guitar and be like, I'm a jazz musician. They're like, no, you don't know how to play a guitar. And I, do you even use guitar and jazz? I don't know. That's a terrible example. Um, I did not rehearse this. Um, but I think that there's, it's like that where you have a fundamental understanding of something and then you can take what you leave and, and leave what you don't. And I think that through multiple iterations of like learning from other people, different types of jobs, different types of cooking, you sort of are left with, okay, well, what's mine? Like, what's my version of all this? And then I, I left my book literally on my bed as I was coming here for sweet enough. But there's, I, I really love the way that you write in the sense that you, you were talking about for, I think it was the, the, the cottage cheesecake that we made yesterday where you were talking about melting butter. And then you were saying, well, you can melt the butter or you can make burnt butter. And I think the, the sentence was something like, I hate to give you this choice, but let me tell you and assure you that it works well both ways. Mm. And that, that to me is a really smart sentence because firstly, you understand that having the choice of doing those two things for someone reading a recipe is not necessarily a good thing. Like you, you, no, when you're reading just a recipe. Just tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also like you, you have this way, whether it's in home movies or in the recipes that, that you write that reassures someone as they're going along through it. Is that, is that an important thing for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I try to follow the recipes as I'm cooking them and then document them by writing them. So I'm sort of taking you with me as I do it. And so if I'm like, I know you're going to try and do this, don't, because here's what's going to happen. Or this might happen and that's okay, because I know because it happened to me. Like, there's a million different ways something can go, like, uh, to roast a chicken or to, like, do anything. And I think it's nice to know that if you make one deviation from the recipe or from what I've done, like, you're not going to be doomed. Or conversely, if you do do something that I say not to, it's helpful to know why I'm telling you not to, because I hate being told what to do unless I know why. But that was a huge part of my education. And I was probably super irritating. But, you know, every time somebody told me to do something in a kitchen, I was like, well, why do we do it that way? Or what happens if we don't do that? Or like, do we really have to do that? 
Because if there's more work to be done, like I'd rather like cut that time in half, wouldn't we all? So I think it's nice to understand like from an informational perspective of like the hows and whys of cooking. Um, That said, I'm not, I don't take like a super brainy approach to it because I do think that there should be some room for like intuition and emotive sort of uh, direction in cooking. Like we can't distill it down to just science and instruction. Like there has to be like gut instinct and sort of feeling and vibe to cooking. Wait, sorry. Can you hear my earring? Is it so annoying? I'm so sorry. I was like, what is that? I was like, oh my God, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Yeah. Okay. So the earring's gone. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. Wow, I should have asked like an hour ago. Okay, I feel so much better. We're only 19 minutes in. We're good. Okay, good. Let's talk about social media for a bit because um, in the good way first, in the sense that it has this enormous ability to take something like a recipe that you would write in your office or on your kitchen table and then all of a sudden people are talking about it as it's part of the cultural zeitgeist, you know, the stew. Everyone's making the stew. Thousands of people across the world are making this thing that you just came up with. How smart do you have to be? Like, how much planning goes into, I guess, creating... I hate to say a viral recipe, because you don't know if a recipe is going to be viral when you write it to you. No, no idea. Yeah, I I don't... Again, there's not that much thought that goes into that. I try to make every recipe that I make, like, fantastic. And I think that it's easier for something to catch on when you're publishing bi-weekly or weekly rather than a collection in a book, because... Each person's going to have a really different experience with that book. They're going to read it differently. They're going to be interested in different things at one time. They might not cook from it for a few weeks or a month or two or ever. And so it's very different than when, like, it's in a column, you know, for newspaper or newsletter where it's like, okay, here's the thing this week that you should be paying attention to. And if it hits a chord with enough people, then that's when it kind of catches or happens. But I don't consider any recipe more valuable than the other. And I, I try to, like... I, I kind of wish that it doesn't happen almost because yeah. it, it sets the precedent that it should always happen. And if it doesn't, I'm like, oh God, did I fail? Is this one not as good? And I went through that cycle for sure because everyone, like, everyone's like asking, what's it going to be? And I was like, I hope it's none of them. I hope that like mm. people just buy the book and enjoy it. Or I hope people just like subscribe to the newsletter and cook it in their own time. And I also think that the current climate with social media and you know whether or not you participate on certain platforms and how many recipes exist on the internet, it's very hard to break through and get everybody to agree to cook the same thing at the same time. But yet days. you manage that. Like you, you, there is an enormous amount of content. So much content. Con- too much content, one might say. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of content. But you manage to be able to cut through that. And you do that through a mixture of writing really great recipes, but also through personality. And, and to me, this is kind of the Faustian pact of social media. You get the freedom to be yourself, to decide what you're going to do and where you're going to do it and how you're going to be. But then you also have to give up more of yourself in that process. I, I think about your your Goodbye Meatballs video as part of Home Movies where if you've seen that, it's that these, these meatballs that somebody, uh, well, I'll let you tell the story if you want to, but essentially it, it involves a breakup and you say four times during that video that you are over the breakup. Then the video stops. <laughs> it stops for a few minutes for you to cry about that breakup. Yeah. You know, and that breakup I was actually over, which is why I could make that video. 
that was like one of those relationships where you're like the next day you're like I'm weirdly fine I'm like so fine that I am concerned that I was in it for so long type of energy but it was because of the meatballs no um but yeah I don't know I think that once I started creating content for myself and didn't have an assignment necessarily from a magazine or a newspaper or I wasn't like writing for someone else, which I had done for so many years as a freelancer and as a columnist and an editor. But when I started doing home movies in the newsletter, it was really the first time in my adult life where I was like truly writing for myself in that way and definitely like doing videos for myself. Um, I had done the books, but I think I was still in a way like finding myself, finding my voice, like dining in I was like, wow, I get to do this for me. But I, I think I'm still finding out my version of a cookbook and, you know, in that process. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's like a, a, it was a real blessing to have the opportunity to, like, do it for myself. And I think that sharing things like personal stories or whatever, at the time it was sort of like, I don't know if one person is watching this or a million people are going to watch this, and it didn't really matter. So I I wasn't performing for anyone. I wasn't saying like, well, this isn't appropriate for this audience or like, this isn't what these people are going to like. I was just like, well, here's what I like and here's what I find interesting. Give, me, give us a look at the, the nuts and bolts of it. How, do, how does, uh, did you wander into the giant skyscraper that is Alison Roman Enterprises <laughs> with an assistant that passes you all of your messages from that morning? Like, what, what is the nuts and bolts of how you do what you do. What's, what does the team look like? Do you, do you say, I'm going to do this recipe and then cameraman comes over or is there, is there like a, a whiteboard in a building somewhere where there's a lot of ideas being short? No, that sounds nice though. I love the idea that there's a whiteboard one day. Uh, I have a running Google doc, uh, that I have access to and it just says to do and that is basically how it gets done. Um, or not, or doesn't get done. Um, yeah, I've had, I, I'm currently on this tour, like I, my assistant and I, parted ways before for unrelated reasons, boring story. Um, so I've been like on my own for a minute, but I have like the home movies team, Dan and David, of course, um, they'd love to be here if they could. Um, and so they sort of, we do that with them. And then I have like the publishers who deal with the books and then the newsletter is really just me. Um, writing on my computer, um, which, and I think most people, if they pay attention can tell because there's like constant typos, links are broken. They don't really come every other week. Um, it's very, uh, free spirited. And, um, if I, I, you know, I'm hoping to change that when I get back from this tour, I have like a new person starting and it is basically their job to make sure that I, that all the work looks good and I do my job on time. So it's a new era for home movies. How's, how's the transition been? Because obviously, you know, there are the swings and roundabouts of global success and, and all of the, the, the targets on your back that come with that. When you made the switch to, I guess, doing um, a newsletter, not the newsletter, a newsletter and home movies, what was it like for you? What was, what was the feeling? Like, was it like, okay, I'm starting something new. Is it, uh, I'm going to make this work? Or what? Yeah. I mean, it was really like, I'm going to make this work. It was like not a great time for me personally or professionally, but it was also sort of like a nothing left to lose time for me. You know, I was like, I was single. I didn't have a job. We were in a pandemic. Uh, it was dark. Um, but at the same time, like if that's, you're like, well, everything is bad, then 
like, I wasn't afraid that anything bad was going to happen. And so I sort of did the thing that I wanted to do for myself, which was write a lot more and inject more, you know, vulnerability and like personality um, and honesty into that writing and not felt, feel like I was the mouthpiece for like a magazine as like a house voice, which I felt like I had been for years, like defining the voice of other brands and sort of them molding to me, me molding to them and it becoming like some version of yourself, but not entirely. And I remember when I first started doing the newsletter, people were like, would respond to me and they're like, I didn't know you could write. And I was like, I've been writing for the paper of record every other week for two years and nobody was reading them because it was, the recipes were always published separately from like the full content, like essay. And, you know, so people would Google shallot pasta and they would only see the recipe. They wouldn't see like the beautiful prose that came with it. Um, and now I force it upon you. Um, but I had a lot of people sort of unsubscribe, uh, literally and metaphorically, when they're like, I'm not here for the stories, lady. And I was like, well, I'm sorry to you. And it, I felt really defiant, but really confident in that, that I was going to find the audience that wanted everything that I had to offer and that I could then provide them with a real service of like giving them the food that they wanted as well. And so it feels like a really unique and beautiful sort of like, hate to use the word community, but uh, it does feel like that. And it doesn't feel like a bunch of strangers. You feel like you're writing to the people that really want to be there. You know, brands work for <clears throat> decades to try to achieve what you're able to do with your audience in, in, in just a couple of years. So, Brands are always trying to be one person. Mm. And I think that like when people wonder about the success of an individual, I think it's really hard to replicate. And that really scares me about scaling my job and professionally and like how do you kind of become bigger? How do you grow beyond the thing that you are? And like at the risk of losing the intimacy and the control and like, God forbid there never be a typo in my newsletter. What would become of me? <laughs> who, who would I be then if the links worked all the time? Um, but I, it's concerning, you know, but I, I, I'm sure we'll work around it and evolve. But um, yeah, brands are always trying to like talk to you like they're a person and you're like, you're a mattress company. <laughs> and they're like, you know, hey, mate. And you're like, you're, this is so weird. And um, it's very hard to replicate an individual. I like the little hey, mate that you threw in there. That's Didn't go in the crowd. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I want to talk about cultural appropriation for a second here, and I want to do this in a weird way for an interviewer in the sense that I want to talk about it and have you not talk about it. I'm happy to not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I wrote a recipe for what I was calling Australian bolognese the uh, last month, and it was a good recipe. It's how I make my bolognese at home. It did numbers. It was the... I think it was the most popular recipe in Australia that month. Um, ah, okay. Flex. <laughs> <laughs> what followed from that was like three weeks of various Italian people writing to me that it was not how you make bolognese in Bologna, which I don't care about, frankly. Like, I, I do care right. about it in an academic way, but it's not going to change how I make bolognese for my kids. Right, in Australia. So there is this weird kind of double-edged sword of cultural appropriation where people have... Some people, not everyone, and I will say there were a lot of Italians going, great, make Australian bolognese, we don't care. Where people have picked this kind of moment in history, in this ever-changing landscape of movements of people and ingredients and things that 
change in economics and geography and agriculture. And people pick this moment and go, okay, things are authentic now. And then everything that is either before or after that or anything that you might want to do with that in the future is wrong. And they're going to be angry with you for, for doing that wrong. And so it's almost like, so when you're a migrant to a country, you have these kind of weird no-win situations where if you don't have a job, you're a drain on the economy. But if you get a job, you're stealing our jobs, you know? And that's what cultural progression in cooking feels like to me. If you are making something that is inspired by another place mm -hmm. and then you get people saying that's not authentic, that's not like how it's supposed to be made. But then if you don't recognise that it's, you know, it uses turmeric in a stew made from chickpeas, then people are like, well, hang on, you're, you're not giving us due credit for what we have done. Mm -hmm. And I feel that it, it kind of puts recipe writers like you and I in this r truly a no-win situation where you cannot win for this. I don't want you to talk about this so much because it, it is... I'm just it, hydrating. I don't... I'm <laughs> fine. Keep going. And, and I feel like I can't ask you to talk about it because we are in this world where you have... I feel like I have to protect you from like, oh, at the Sydney Opera House, Alison Roman said this about cultural appropriation, and that's going to be a whole story in itself. That's why I'm just hydrating again. Yeah. <laughs> so my actual question for you at the end of that is, why when there is a pileup on people on social media, it literally always ends up with people attacking a woman? Because misogyny, uh, folks. Uh, worldwide epidemic. Um, yeah, thank you. Let's hear it from Asante, you know. Um, I think a lot of it is that people also don't assume that a woman knows what she's talking about or could be like a credible, uh, professional. And I think that it's really widely accepted that a man is a chef and he's creative and he knows what he's doing because he works in the places and went to the school and like does stuff that is chefy. I don't know. But a woman being a chef is like, oh, that's so cute. You have a little bloggy blog and <laughs> your little Instagram and like, that's so sweet. And like, no, it's not sweet. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> no. Um, but I think that that has a lot to do with it. I think that there's just like a general consensus that today, I, it doesn't not even worth repeating, but it happens every day all the time. And it's like you, there's no other, like, I was thinking about this the other day, like, I can't imagine another profession where you do it for 16, 17 years like I have, and people still would not credit you with being a professional or knowing what you're talking about. And sort of, like, assuming that, like, the best you could do is steal from people or, like, be, I, I don't know, it's, it's pretty maddening, but, um, and it doesn't just happen to women, I mean, it happened to you, but, yeah, I think that it's, um... It's terrible, but I also think that there's a lot of uh, nuance to the conversation, obviously, and again, we're not going to talk about it, um, but yeah. But it's, it's true. Like, you know, there, there are chefs in restaurants, largely male, all around this country and literally every other country that are taking influences, adapting them, credited or not, and there is no discussion really around, and, and frankly, I don't care. Like, if you go to Italy... They serve sushi in Chinese restaurants. I do not care about that. Like, they, they, do you do you? You do exactly what you want to do. I, I, you want to make lemon chicken? Like, fine, that's fine. <laughs> that's yeah. it's not my, part of my culture, but I'm happy to actually even make it for you. That's how Chinese people feel about this. Yeah. So, and and the line of questioning, I I guess, 
Melissa Leong, I should say, would have done a much better job of, of that than I am, but for obvious reasons, um, she wasn't able to be here tonight. I will say that she did send me a message saying that she hopes that we all have a very good time tonight. So she's going through a hard time. Yeah. Let's have a round of applause for Melissa. <laughs> So let's talk about food for a little bit. Um, I feel like I can read an Alison Roman recipe and know that it's an Alison Roman recipe. And that is a very difficult thing for a recipe writer or a food person to do. Because Thank you. Yeah, it's just dill. There's dill in it. <laughs> do you have a style? Do you have a food philosophy that, that guides what you do? Yeah, I do. I, I don't know that I could like like specify it in a good amount of time um, or even in a way that would make sense to myself. But I think that it is like, I'm a very emotional person. I'm a very emotional cook. Um, I do things based on like how I feel that day. What, what, you know, what does my body want? What is, what sounds amazing to me? Like, I, again, I'm not very calculated and I don't map out sort of what makes something me, but I do have really strong opinions. Um, and some people love that. Some people don't. And that's okay. But I think that that is also, to me, I can back them up. And I think that when I ask you to use an ingredient or I rely on an ingredient again and again and again, or I'm like, I promise you'll like the whole lemon slice one day, just take out the seeds. It feels like I, you know, I'm worried of, of becoming redundant also. Like I'm worried of doing the same thing too often. Um, but it's funny, somebody messaged me the other day and they said that they were cooking a short rib recipe of mine or their husband was or something. And they were looking at it and they're like, this doesn't really seem like an Allison Roman recipe. And it was from like, what year are we in? 2023. Um, it was probably from like 2016 or something. And it was an assignment for the New York times. Like, Oh, we want you to make a braised short rib recipe. And I was like, I don't really like short ribs, but sure. And so I made this recipe and like, yeah, it wasn't very me. My, my heart wasn't in it. It was an assignment. It, uses carrots, uh, a huge tell. Uh, and she's like, I much prefer your one and nothing fancy. And I was like, yeah, that's me. And that's like, that's my version of like a braised short rib. Um, so I guess that is to say at the time, I don't think I was like, this isn't me, but I was still figuring myself out and figuring out what I did like and what was an ingredient that I wanted to rely on or what my food did taste like. I find that I'm like actually now going back and rewriting recipes. Like, oh yeah, I, I, I write a lot of recipes, and so sometimes I'm like, I'm just going to rewrite that recipe that I did five years ago because now I yeah. would make it different. And I'd I think that's better. okay. And I feel that way too. Where, you know, I'll think of something that I did, and at the time I had a lot of conviction behind, and four years later I'm like, you know what, I would do it differently, and that's okay. I think that anybody in this room has to be able to evolve, and probably does and has. And that's okay. And it's like a part of being a human person. The difference is, is when everything that you do is documented and it's in a book or it's on the internet, it's like very rare that we allow the, the two things to be different. And it's like, well, that was 2014. And like, this is 2023. Like, aren't you a different person from 2014? And, you know, sometimes I'll look at, especially like recipes and dining in where I'm like, I wrote that in 2016 and there's a few things in there that I still do, that I, things I still cook, you know, techniques I still use. And some things I'm like, wow, I would never do that even now. And I think that like in another five years, that'll feel the same way. And I think oftentimes when people ask me, especially like chefs will ask me about like writing cookbooks and stuff. And they're like, well, we change the menu every week. 
And like, we sometimes cut the vegetable this way and sometimes we cut it this way. Like, how are we supposed to put down on paper, like the ultimate way to do it? And I'm like, well, you can't, that's why I sort of don't, unless it's a pie crust. Like (laughs) there's rarely a time where I'm like, this is the only way to do this because I do believe in the evolution of cooking, even from person to person, year to year. And I sort of consider, especially books because, you know, of the permanent nature of them, to be sort of little time capsules. And I'm like, you have to kind of relax and allow yourself to say, this is me as a cook today, documented in this way. And and when I look back in four years, like, I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. That's what I was doing four years ago. And that's a real gift to be able to chart your own progress, your own creative path. But I don't think you should be beholden to say like, I made my bolognese today like this. And then in three years, you're like, oh, actually now I make it with this meat or I add this instead of this. And that's nice. That's like evolution. Oh, yeah. Let's hear it for evolution. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad. I'm like-minded individuals. (laughs) Is there something that you know now about cooking that you wish you'd known from the beginning? Hmm. Interesting. I think that I'm learning something new all the time. Mm. Um, I do think that I, I do need to get out of my own kitchen sometimes. Um, and obviously the pandemic was really challenging for that because it's very difficult to feel creative in a vacuum when you don't have other people to feed and other food to eat and other people to cook with and for. Um, but I think not so much cooking because I feel like I'm kind of always learning a different thing. There's not like any one thing that I feel like was going to make or break me cook, like specifically cooking wise. Are there mistakes that people make in the kitchen? They could be practical mistakes or conceptual mistakes like that, that you, that you see people doing. Like you ask any chef and they're usually like, people don't season their food well enough and, or, you know, they don't know how you, to use their knife well enough. Is there, is there some kind of like really elemental basic level thing that you think people can do to improve their cooking? People, I feel like people are very just afraid in the kitchen. They're like, mm afraid of turning the heat too high. They're afraid of putting something in the oven for too long. They're afraid of putting too much olive oil on something. It's like, live a little, guys. Just like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, like, turn up the heat a little. Like, drizzle that bad boy. Like, come on. Like, cooking should be, like, a sensual activity. And I think that people are also really afraid of mess. And they're really afraid of, like, things being dirty or, like, People are like, somebody asked me the other day, they're like, should I be washing my chicken before I roast it? And I was like, what? They're like, all the germs. I'm like, what are you talking about? All the germs? Like, life is a germ. Like, what are we saying here? And like, no, like what? But people are just like, I'm afraid that this is going to happen. I'm like, okay, we all need to like take a breath and be a little less afraid. I just want to be I'm clean. Sorry if you should, you should not be washing chicken, your chicken. <laughs> also, don't wash your chicken. That's so silly. We just went through a whole pandemic. It's like sing happy birthday, 30 seconds, lots of soap, sanitize yeah. it. You should not wash chicken. It does not do anything. Let's talk about sweet enough for a minute. Um, I, I like this quote from you. In, in a, there was in a New Yorker article, and it was like, I think cookbooks can be very lonely books. It's generally just a person and a plate of food. And, and, it really did make me think because I also write cookbooks and, and, and it was, <laughs> the other quote was like, it should have a whimsical and sensual look. This was before you'd written Sweet Enough, actually. And so it was, you just at the start of the writing process, it was like, I want a floating pie, cornbread in a field, pineapples in rowboats. There are no pineapples in rowboats in the book, but there is it's ice cream. Cover. Oh, it's a pineapple cake. Yeah. Yeah. There's an upside, pineapple upside down cake. We know that very well in Australia. It's one of our classics. 
uh, uh, there's ice cream in a melon, there's a shirtless old man eating a piece of cheesecake. Yeah. Is the book kind of, I, I feel quite privileged now because I'm reading an article about you writing it back in 2018. Yeah. And then now I'm seeing the book. Is, is it what you wanted it to be? Is it, uh, it's not a lonely book in my opinion. It's got this real sort of sense of conviviality around it. You have pictures, which I actually have not seen in a cookbook before of just random people. Like, yeah. At your house and things just with your food. It's like, who's well, that? Some of them are my friends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but some of them are strangers on the beach. And we did get turned down by a lot of people, but a lot of people said yes. Um, yeah, it is what I wanted. It is very much what I wanted. And I feel like it is in some ways like the least me book because it's all sweets. And I'm obviously a savory person. But there's anchovies in there. There's savory stuff. That there you are. made me cauliflower pie from there like yesterday. I did. And you loved it. It was great. Um, and I, I do think, though, like design-wise, photography-wise, and writing-wise, it is the most me book that I've ever done. But I probably felt that way about Nothing Fancy. And, you know, I probably will feel that way about the next book. It's like me now. And um, I, you know, so, so much happened between writing Dining In and Sweet Enough that I really, again, I think, un- without having started a newsletter, I don't know that I would have like fought so hard to have writing be such a huge part of sweet enough. Um, but I, I feel like it is the most stripped down version of me, actually this book. And like, you know, like with, with all the books I do, I make all the food, we take pictures. There's no like studio where almost everything's always on location. And, but with this book, I didn't even have a prop stylist. It was just like me, Chris, the photographer. And we had one assistant who like would help him and me sort of do various things. And that was it. And I, that's really like the kind of energy that I needed, I think, to feel good and confident about making a book again. Cause I was, yeah, I, was, I mean, again, I was coming out of like a really tough patch and I, my confidence was super rattled and like, who am I? Like, what, you know, is anyone going to buy it? Is anyone going to like it? And like, but I think the who am I part was the hardest thing to overcome. And I was just like, the fewer people around me, the better right now. And I needed like a really tiny team of like, wildly talented individuals that I could trust to like get inside here and, and do their thing with it. And both Chris, the photographer, and then Britt, the designer did that. And Francis, my editor, and it was a really tiny team and it feels like deeply personal for that reason. It, it's weird to say, cause it truly does come across it. The other quote from that New York article, New York article was, about the book as you were starting to write it was, I can't feed the machine anymore. I need to be a different machine. And I think that really does come across in the book in the sense that it is a, it's incredibly personal and, and not just in, in the style of how you write it, but also kind of in, in, in the type of food that it is. It, it, there's nothing that feels off about it. It feels very authentic. If, yeah. As well, someone who's just raged against authenticity, yeah, it feels well, authentic to you. Authentic in the individual sense. Um, mm. But I think it's because also I'm not, you know, the best baker in this room. I'm not the best person, you know, best baker who's making dessert cookbooks. It's not the thing that I feel most confident about. And so I really had to think about, okay, well, what am I contributing to the conversation? Because my editor really wanted a dessert book from me and they wanted it to be the second book. And I fought really hard to make sure that it wasn't the second book because I wanted to sort of set a foundation as like a savory food person and a what's for dinner person. And I felt like if I did dessert for the second book, people would be like, well, what is, what's her vibe then? Um, what is her vibe? We still don't know. Um, but I was like, okay, I'll do it for the third book. And I'm really glad that I did because I was ready for kind of a break. And I think that's sort of what I meant by like, I just can't feed the machine anymore because 
the proliferation of like recipes and how many there are and how many, there's so many people out there that are like cranking them out every day and put and making reels and doing the thing and making a video and all this. And I'm like, I can't keep up and I don't want to keep up. And so taking a pause and like hitting refresh and like letting my savory food come through in the newsletter in a really casual way. Um, and then making this book, which felt really focused and specific, like you said earlier, you like the, like the confines of an assignment sort of. And that's what I liked. I was like, okay, this is specific. And I felt like, you know, I could concentrate on that. And then I could like pick up the pieces and say, okay, like I'm ready to do a savory book again. I'm not ready yet, by the way, but I will, I will have to be very soon. We wait with bated breath. Yeah. I'm going to ask the audience for some questions here. There are a few microphone stands around uh, the room, so if you could think of some questions and kind of make your way over to there. But while we wait for people to get to oh, there you are. Wow. the microphone. Wow, hey, everyone. Um, I do want to ask you for a favor mm. because the United States, mm. Liberia, and Myanmar are the three countries in the world that use the imperial system of measurement. And I apologize on all of our behalf. It is so embarrassing. I hate it so much. But I do want you to know that I even published the U.S. version of this book with the metric measurements. Because, thank you, thank you so much. Um, I really am trying to, like, encourage people to buy a scale because it is so much easier. I'm trying to sort of be like, you guys, like cups and tablespoons are so like annoying and it's so hard and messy and there's germs, but a scale is so easy. <laughs> but like a cup of flour to every person in this room would be a different weight. Mm. Like it's not consistent and it drives me crazy, but a hundred grams is a hundred grams. It's easy. It's so obvious. Yeah. I, you know, Thank we, you. We Evolution, are not the most grams, Yeah. <laughs> We are not the most forward-thinking country in the world here in Australia. We literally just got a new king, which is like Middle Ages stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but in America, you have two massive problems, and it's guns and the imperial system. Yeah. I don't expect you to do anything it. on the gun stuff, but the imperial measurements would really help the rest of the world out a lot. Yeah, we, um, it's a mess over there, frankly. Do we have any questions here at any of our microphones? Don't be shy. Yeah, seriously. Hi. Thank you so much, um, Allison. And I'm just so inspired inspired by your journey and I'm just wondering when you first endeavored on home movies and you'd been through that dark period how you dealt with the rattling or the nerves with home movies specifically those first few episodes thanks yeah um thank you um well I mean it was just me in my kitchen with like three people so (laughs) I promise this is a lot scarier um but I think that's why I wanted to do it. I was doing those videos anyway already for the times. And so when that stopped, I was like, well, I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm just going to do it myself. So, you know, we sent like a, a full like budget and hi. Do your thing. Okay. Um, we set like a budget and I was like, okay, how much is this going to cost to make? And like, how much money am I willing to invest in myself? And if I think this can work. And so I honestly just kind of approached it like homework and like a business task. It wasn't scary, but I was really nervous the first one that came out. I was like, what are people going to say? Like, and which is like also really kind of centering yourself in a weird way. You're, it's like, honey, no one's caring anymore about you. Like no one's has a Google alert with your name on it, just you. <laughs> um, so I think it just kind of had to like work through it. And sort of all the advice that I received around that time from most people was just like, the only way through it is through it. And the first part is going to fucking suck. 
and it's going to be hard and people are going to be mean and you just have to keep going. Uh, number six up the back there. Number six. Hi, Alison. Thank Hi. you so much. Um, you have a terrific but petite kitchen. What are the rules and tools that make your space work? Mm, rules and tools. Um, well, I think that it, I learned a lot from working in professional pastry kitchens because they always sort of like shove you to the back closet. They're like, we have this beautiful kitchen and the pastry department is under this table. <laughs> and so you learn, I learned, you know, from early on in my professional career to like work in tiny spaces. And everyone always says like, it's sort of like the, if you have all day, you'll take all day. And it's like, if you have all the space, you'll take all the space. So the next time you're cooking at home, if you are blessed with like a really large kitchen, sort of give yourself the assignment to like work with half the space and you will, and you'll notice yourself becoming more efficient. And like, you'll notice, like, I don't want to move my body a ton in the kitchen. I want to like go from the, from the cutting board and turn around to the stove. I don't want to like traverse the, like the whatever. Even if I did have the square footage, I would still make everything in like a pretty small footprint. I would just have more storage. But like, you know, I think that that is my biggest piece of advice is sort of pretend like you have less space to work in and you'll find yourself being way more efficient and finding, you know, all your things at an arm's reach and you'll be saving a lot of time. Hi, Alison. Hi. Um, I've got a very specific question. Um, your tomato salad in Nothing Fancy. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> what page number is that? Can we get a... It, yeah. It's fantastic. Thank you. I've, I've bought many books just for people, just for that recipe. Oh, thank you. Um, what was the inspiration for that? What was the inspiration for that? I don't really know. I know exactly where I was when I made it. I was, like, cooking for friends upstate. I was... I feel like I made the oil first for something else. If I rem- I don't know. It was, like, years ago, and I made it, like, on the same night that I cooked lamb. And I think I had, like, opened up a tin of anchovies because I was rubbing the lamb with it, obviously. And then I was like, well, now I have these anchovies. And, like... I don't know. I was just sort of thinking of like what would be good, like leftover. I think a lot of my recipes and ideas and creativity come from just me already having ingredients out and me being like, well, I don't want to let this go to waste and I throw it in a pot or something, but it's very casual. Um, but I don't know. Cause it's like not that spicy. It's not that anchovy. It's like not quite a bagnacata. It's not a chili crisp. It's like has fennel seed in it. It's like kind of a cookie thing, but it is so good on just about everything, but especially tomatoes. In stores now, everybody. You can uh, buy it. Hi. Oh, hello. How are you going? Great. How are you? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you for having us all here tonight. Oh, my gosh. This is so nice. I love my new friends. <laughs> um, I was cooking up this question, just sitting in the chair over there and thinking, oh, yeah, that'd be a sick question. Oh, it would be so funny. Um, but now I think it's super wildly inappropriate. But no, let's okay. do it. Okay. The um, more the merrier, I say. If- if you had a significant other or just like a lover, mm. what would be the the meal that you would eat off of their body? Oh, I was like, <laughs> wow. You know, I don't find eating food off bodies to be hot. Like I've never I've never really understood that where they're like, I wanna like lick like whipped cream. I was like, why would you wanna do that? Or like the sushi body experience or anything, but I don't know. I gotta say, like, for as much as I lick my own hands when I'm cooking, I don't necessarily want anyone else to lick mine. And I don't wanna lick theirs, frankly. So that's boring. Germs. No, I'm not afraid of germs, but 
Yeah, I don't know. Bad answer. I don't have one. Sorry, but I Let's love your on. question. <laughs> uh, number one here. Hi, Hi, Alison. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of your outfit. Um, <laughs> dreams come true. I know. <laughs> um, but... At my last job, I was quite bored working for Google and you sat in the corner of my screen most of the day because I would just watch home movies instead of do my job. But I do have a question about your key lime pie. Okay. It's very hard in Australia to get our hands on graham crackers. Oh and if my you God. import them, they're $45 a box. No, not worth it. Correct. Yeah. Adam, you need to help Alison find a substitute in this country for that crumb. It looks delicious. Yes. And graham crackers are delicious, but a contraband um, in the <laughs> Antipodeans. Okay. So if you can do that and then do it for like a newsletter at your own convenience. Okay, well I'm gonna need your I'm gonna need your help then. I need like everybody to collectively figure out how to get me the information. Yes. Adam, like, you're there. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I just, yeah. Thank you so much. He's on the hook. I, I actually, you, you seem so passionate about this that I don't want to give an answer right now. I want to go and like research it, make sure I'm right. And I'll email Alison and then she'll put it in a future newsletter for all of you yeah. to come to. Okay. We've got huge inconsistencies with our biscuits and cookies. Yeah. We got to fix that. At number We're in the three. Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> Hi, thanks so much for coming. Um, I know you're a huge Swifty, so are you going to the Eras Tour, and what are your two dream surprise songs? Um, I am going. Um, I'm going twice. Uh, once because I bought a ticket, and once because my sister figured out how to get a ticket. Um, so I'm flying to Los Angeles to go, which is like <laughs> negates the ticket that I... Whatever. Um, my two... Hmm... Gosh, I don't know. I'm like on the spot now. I feel really nervous. I hope she's not watching. Um, <laughs> I, I hope she does False God, although I feel like she won't because I think this is that's like not the vibe of the tour. Um, I also think, or I also hope she plays um, You're on Your Own Kid because I feel like that should have, you know, I don't know, gotten more play. But um, that whole, anyway, whatever. Now I'm like hot, like she's here. Like I'm like, <laughs> whole time and now I'm like oh god what are my secret songs um okay yeah <laughs> but I'll let you know <laughs> uh probably time for maybe two more number two hello thanks Hi. for such a good conversation to both of you um so I'm not a Virgo but I'd love to be one one day and I know you are do you yeah <laughs> oh, we I both think you're are a fantastic too. meticulous star sign so as a Virgo could you tell me what you're like recipe development processes like do you go through things multiple times or like you know when it's right I'd love yeah. to know it is it is a blessing and a curse because I also have like no other Virgo in my chart it's like a full fire sign mess and then like a Virgo and so I have the like I need to be perfect but I'm like but don't you know it's okay if you're not perfect and I'm like but I have to be perfect <laughs> And so that is sort of the blessing and the curse. But I think just generally speaking, I'm, I am I have deep fear of recipes not working. And so that's what drives me to, like, make sure that they really work. And that's why this baking book has actually been the worst and hardest because ovens are really different and ingredients are really different, especially dairy products and flour, you know, country to country, state to state. Um, so it's hell is in short, uh, <laughs> but deeply fulfilling. So... Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go back to number five up the top there. 
Hi, Alison. Hi. Um, bring you back to maybe your specificity around measurements. My wife and I have hearty discussions about the amount of salt you use in recipes and how oh, much no. a pinch is. To, to be clear, I'm pro-salt, so um, okay. maybe just around the size of your hands. And I was thinking you and Adam could do a little combo, a little compare for me. Wow. As to, she says it's because we have different size hands, but um, <laughs> I feel like you know what a pinch is. But also, what what salt do you mostly use here? Is it a sea salt? So the, the mechanics of salt are. Very much down to the actual salt they use rather than the, the size of your hand, I guess. Because most people yeah. will use like, and the different mineral contents of salt in Australia will change the way it is. So it depends on the brand of salt that you use. I mean, well, the, yeah, we're the, using the crystal really diamond different salt. In, in, in the kosher salt that the Americans use is, is a bit more fine than, say, a Malden salt or, you know, Murray River or whatever it happens to be. So. I have to move to Australia to fully answer that question, I think. So stay tuned. But they're, yeah, she's probably not using enough salt. <laughs> Sorry to her. Uh, num- number one down here. Hi. Oh, that's me. Hello. No. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet um, you. You've made my pandemic uh, horror story a little better. And oh, good. Trashed the kitchen a lot. So sorry to my housemate because of you. <laughs> um, simple question What's your favorite thing you've eaten in Australia? Ooh, my favorite thing I've eaten in Australia. Um, it's been, honestly, I, I have to say, I've done a, not an excellent job because I've been basically working the whole time. Um, but I had a really amazing tartare at Gimlet. And I think it was, I was like charmed by the table side experience, but that was great. Um, and the next day I had a really amazing, uh, it was basically like a pork bone soup, but it was like whole bones cut up in it. So it was really thick with collagen and like incredible, like, richness but it wasn't it was super light it was like full of lemongrass and no actual meat in it just like the bones that you can kind of suck on and that was really great it was also cold and rainy it was like right place right time but I have I have some free time in Sydney so I look forward to even more treasures here yeah Allison is here for like the the rest of the week so so you will see her around all over if you just stalk her a little bit I'll be at all Um, the places you guys all go to (laughs) Uh, I think we probably have time for one last question up the back there, number six. Hi, thanks for having, oh, for talking for us. I was <laughs> nervous. Um, I was wondering if, what other creative things keep you interested in cooking other than just cooking? Because head down in the industry all the time, I feel like you would just start repeating what's around you rather than being original and fresh. Yeah, I actually find that to be a struggle, generally speaking. Um, I think divorcing myself a little bit from my phone is key to sort of keeping my own creativity uh, flowing, because otherwise you do start to kind of compare yourself to other people or say, is that what people like? Or, like, you kind of lose your own compass. Um, so, like, staying aware of external inspiration is great, but also I do believe in sort of going inward and limiting exposure just to, like, quiet the voices and make sure that like you're kind of staying true to your own creative path. But I think that for me, having an equal balance of like writing and cooking is kind of what keeps me going. And when I don't feel like writing, I find myself cooking. And when I'm burnt out of cooking, I find myself writing. It feels really great. No, uh, I know you said that was the last question, but oh. okay. <laughs> Number one coming on. <laughs> <There> is... <laughs> Number one. <laughs> 
I'm not a barrister for nothing. There is something slightly surreal about this evening when there's a very big elephant in a very big room and no one's mentioned it. Oh, wow. uh, What I would say... Is it the lemon shortbread? The yeah. recipe's wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, the lemon turmeric cake normally. But, uh, but do you think that your story demonstrates that cancel culture can be beaten by personal fortitude? Um, sure. Yeah, it can be, I suppose. I don't, I don't, can't speak to the culture at large. I have my own personal experience with it. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like, what do you do? You die or you just keep living your life? And I, I just chose to keep living my life. And my um, follow-up question. So, yeah, I don't know. Exactly. And we, we'll leave and it my follow-up because... question was, do you think that people should simply, uh, give in to the cancel culture or stop apologizing and just say shut the fuck up oh i i feel like we that's too nuanced we gotta focus on evolution and the metric system i think because <laughs> uh, we are out of time i realized the timer that i thought was counting down is now actually gone to counting up so we are over time now but can we please have a huge thank you for alison <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.